This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the leaves are turning, the temperatures are falling, and we're counting down to the next open enrollment under the Affordable Care Act, the third open enrollment since full implementation of the health care law. Almost getting to be a routine, Mark. And November mm-hmm. 1st is the start date for open enrollment under the Affordable Care Act. And interesting to note, there is already a lessening of a sense of urgency this time around. HHS has done a good job working out most of the kinks in the online portals. I think customers, consumers are getting more accustomed to using online insurance marketplaces. And people are really beginning to understand the impact that the tax subsidies have in terms of reducing the cost of purchasing health insurance for them and for their families. More than 80% of American families who purchased insurance through the exchanges realize some kind of tax subsidy, which has made buying insurance an achievable goal for millions of Americans. Still, many millions haven't signed up for coverage yet. And uh, we want to remind people that those who don't will pay a higher tax penalty this year. Well, the Department of Health and Human Services is seeking to do more outreach this time around, Mark, and it's very targeted, looking to uh, try and bring in more of the young invincibles and also the nation's Latino population uh, into seeking coverage. These are the two groups that just persistently remain disproportionately uninsured. But one group is guaranteed coverage, American seniors. 10,000 Americans are turning 65 every day, making them eligible for health coverage through Medicare, a program that covers 55 million American seniors. And Medicare open enrollment is also underway, Mark. And that's gotten a little more complex in recent years in terms of the options that are available to seniors. And that's something that our guest today knows quite a bit about. Ray Hurd is the regional director for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. CMS is seeking to get the word out to American seniors that they should really take a good look at their coverage. He has some important tips for health consumers of all ages to be aware of. And Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, will be stopping by. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Ray Hurd in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. A reprieve for small businesses under a new health law provision. President Obama has signed legislation that would ease requirements for small business owners. The law, which came with bipartisan support, revises the definition of small employer. Companies with 51 to 100 employees will still have to provide insurance options or pay a penalty, but they'll only be required to cover the 10 essential benefits, which might leave some employees with less coverage than they might have otherwise sought. The law established standardized cost-sharing limits and maximum annual spending caps. Insurers can now base premiums in the individual and small group markets on only four things, where people live, family size, tobacco use, and age. Millions of Americans take supplements, often unregulated, over-the-counter supplements promising to do everything from help a person lose weight, gain muscle or vitality, even cure cancer. And while most take them in some kind of moderation, a recent study showed supplements are responsible for about 23,000 hospitalizations each year. 
Often the cause is taking far more than a prescribed dose or not understanding how certain supplements interact with other medications. The age group most likely to land in the hospital with complications, 18 to 23-year-olds. Planned Parenthood has made a decision in the wake of the doctored video controversy that made it appear the Women's Health Organization peddled aborted baby parts on the open market. The fetal tissue distribution used by scientists around the world for research is perfectly legal under a 1993 statute. However, the imbroglio has led to a change of policy at Planned Parenthood. Labs will no longer be charged for the fetal tissue they use for research or the transport of it. An estimated 75 million Americans are expected to have type 2 diabetes by 2030. A little bit of good news. Folks who drank a glass or two of red wine every day actually did better in controlling their diabetes. Israeli researchers randomly assigned 224 patients, all alcohol abstainers with well-controlled type 2 diabetes, to drink five ounces of either mineral water, white wine, or red wine with dinner. All followed a Mediterranean diet without calorie restrictions. After two years, compared with the water drinkers, those who drank red wine had increased their HDL, or good cholesterol, by about 10%. These positive changes didn't happen with the white wine drinkers. However, there were two beneficial effects in all the wine drinkers. Triglycerides and fasting plasma glucose levels decreased significantly in both groups compared to the water drinkers. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Raymond Hurd, Regional Administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Mr. Hurd served for 20 years as an officer in the United States Navy, where he held many leadership roles, including two successful commanding officer tours. Mr. Hurd joined the CMS Boston Regional Office in 2011 and was appointed Regional Administrator in May 2013. He earned his bachelor's degree in civil engineering from Norwich University and a master's degree in management from Troy State University. Mr. Hurd, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Well, thank you for having me. And it's uh, open enrollment season, which insured Americans traditionally take a look at health plans they have and decide whether to renew those plans or consider committing to other options. And many Americans get their coverage through workplaces, but Medicare's open enrollment season is just beginning October 15th. And for seniors, there are many more options than they might realize. Could you tell our listeners about this year's open enrollment season? Sure. So the Medicare open enrollment season runs every year from October 15th through December 7th. Uh, I like to talk mostly about their prescription drug benefits because Mm -hmm. under traditional Medicare, uh, your prescription drugs aren't covered. So this is the time of year when they can review their prescription drug benefits and their prescription plans and see if they need to make a change or enroll into a new plan. The other thing to remember rolling into the open enrollment season is that insurance plans change from year to year. And so you really need to review to see what's changed under your plan. You should have received an annual notice of change letter from um, whichever insurance company is managing your benefits. And that will explain to you those items which, which may have changed. So you need to check the formulary to make sure that the prescription drugs that you're taking are still covered in the new benefit year, or maybe you can find another plan that uh, has a better option for you to get those prescription drugs. 
I know that CMS is very focused on getting the word out to the nation's seniors about uh, being aware of open enrollment. But, you know, from a, a clinical perspective, I think we recognize still just a lot of confusion among many seniors about what their options truly are. What do you think the critical issues that Medicare recipients need to be aware of this year? And maybe you could outline what are the different services covered by Medicare Parts A, B, C, and D, which I think is pretty confusing to those who haven't gotten to that uh, step yet. So this open enrollment period, October 15th to December 7th, is really the one that they need to concentrate on, especially if they want, say, additional benefits through, um, as you mentioned, there's four parts. So if you jump into Part C... Part C is basically um, a contract that we have with private health insurers to manage your Medicare benefits. So in some cases, you may pay an additional premium every month on top of your Medicare A and B premium. I will say for this year that the average premium for Medicare Advantage plans is about $32.91. So, But a Part C plan would manage all your benefits for you. So if you've been in health insurance through your whole life, sometimes people prefer the Part C plans. Plus, um, they sometimes offer additional benefits that you don't get under your traditional Medicare. When I say traditional Medicare, now we're talking Parts A and B. So traditional Medicare Part A covers your hospital or your emergency stays. Part B covers your outpatient or your doctor office visits. To qualify for that, you have to have um, paid into Social Security for 40 quarters, and you enroll through the Social Security Administration. You get what's called an initial enrollment period, which is a seven-month period around your birth month, so the three months prior to your birth month the month of your birth month, and the three months after when you turn 65 is your initial enrollment period. That's the time when you should look and see if you need to sign up for Medicare. And I say that because, as you mentioned, if you're covered through an employer's insurance plan, you may not need to sign up at that point. But there are ramifications if you miss that initial enrollment period and you didn't have other credible insurance. And you could have to pay a penalty for the rest of your life Uh, which is an additional fee to be able to sign up for Medicare. The point I want to make here is that every state has what's called a SHIP program, which stands for State Health Insurance Assistance Program. Those are volunteers that are trained to help you walk through all the ins and outs of Medicare so that you understand and get signed up and do the things that you need to do. And then the fourth part of Medicare, to get back to your question, is Part D, which is prescription drug coverage. If you have prescriptions, you need to sign up for a prescription drug plan in order to help to afford those. You know, we also have a growing number of uh, seniors who are are also what's called dual eligible under uh, CMS, meaning that uh, they have more complex health issues that give them coverage under both Medicare and Medicaid, which tends to be for the underserved and the poor. And they're often dealing with multiple health issues, Could you describe uh, the dual eligible group and the complexities of this population? Sure. So um, back in, I think it was 1973, Medicare was expanded to cover not only individuals over age 65, but also individuals with disabilities. And so a big part of what we call the dual eligible population is a very vulnerable population because they may have disabilities 
So when we talk about a dual eligible beneficiary, that means that they qualify for both Medicare on the federal side as well as Medicaid on the state side at the same time. Well, Ray, I think uh, perhaps the public has not realized how many measures within the Affordable Care Act were really about transforming care and the way we pay for care. And certainly the Center for Medicare and Medicaid has been deeply involved in that work. And does the typical Medicare recipient see changes because of this or is it kind of invisible to them? It is invisible to the typical Medicare beneficiary, except for the fact that they are receiving better quality care and better coordinated care through these systems. We currently have 55 million Medicare beneficiaries across the country. We estimate that in the next 15 years, that number will jump to 80 million. And so we are trying to uh, transform the healthcare delivery system across the country through some of these incentivized or quality payment programs. Traditionally, healthcare is delivered in a fee-for-service model. What we are trying to do is to force quality by bundling some of these payments or by incentivizing doctors to maybe not administer unnecessary tests or procedures and just focus on providing the quality of care and help to reduce the overall costs. Um, There's several ways we do that. We have um, some programs that tie our Medicare payments to performance. We have a readmissions reduction program with hospitals where if they don't meet the benchmarks for preventing a readmission to the hospital, we um, penalize them by taking maybe 1% or 2% of the fee that they would have received for Medicare payments away from them. And then we have uh, other programs that most people have heard of called accountable care organizations where um, they have a group of providers that come together and try and coordinate and administer care for somebody that does away with the traditional fee-for-service side of the house. Now, in January... Uh, the Secretary for Health and Human Services announced that um, we are going to tie 30% of our traditional Medicare payments to quality or value through alternative payment models, such as accountable care organizations or some other bundled arrangements, by the end of 2016. Then we're going to try and tie 50% of those payments to those models by the end of 2018. Then we've also set a goal um, that we're going to um, tie 85% of our um, payments to quality um, through other programs. And so we talk about um, physician quality reporting and some other programs out there that incentivize everybody to try and improve quality and reduce costs. We're speaking today with Raymond Hurd, Regional Administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, where he is uh, currently focused in on ensuring American seniors get health coverage they are entitled to. Ray, this is the first time perhaps in the history of the American health care where most recipients are able to view their options online, whether it's reviewing a variety of health insurance plans under the Affordable Care Act or reviewing drug pricing plans under Medicare. And there's an emerging culture of price transparency as well as access to uh, that information online. How's the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services promoting this uh, transparency initiative, and how are senior consumers using health pricing data, and uh, what is CMS doing to promote the wise use uh, of this data? So CMS's goals include um, making sure that 
health coverage is accessible to everybody. It's affordable to everybody. It's got quality and that we are improving population health. And so we look at um, consumer choice and allowing them to be able to uh, be a part of that. And we have many compare tools that we've launched online so that as a consumer, you can go in and compare um, hospitals against one another or nursing homes or home health agencies. Uh, through the Medicare Plan Finder, you can compare the different um, Medicare Part C and D or Medicare Advantage and prescription drug plans out there. Um, we've added star ratings to our plans and to our compare site. So um, on a scale of one to five, with five being the very best, meeting our quality measures, people can go out and compare all this data so that they can make a choice to see the physician or go to the hospital that they think is going to give them the best quality care. Uh, and so we are very open about and transparent about providing data to people to help make those choices. Well, Ray, I wonder uh, if I can uh, just focus for a moment on sometimes some of the darker sides of these issues. Obviously, uh, Medicare covers a very vulnerable population, and there are enormous financial uh, resources uh, committed uh, and, and transacting within the Medicare system all the time. And I know that fraud uh, and user scams are something that uh, all of you in senior positions uh, have to be aware of. You've written about this issue uh, and the Fraud Prevention Program, SCMS. Tell us a little bit, how, how prevalent is the issue, and uh, is there a need to educate our nation's seniors about the potential for threats from fraud? fraud or scams? What, what should they be looking for? Well, I will say there's a need to educate anyone who uses the healthcare system about fraud because it's a system that has a lot of um, not just fraud, but also what we call waste um, and unnecessary procedures in it. But when we're talking about our seniors, they are very vulnerable population to fraud. Um, you know, in, in the first, so in Part of the Affordable Care Act, um, we announced that we were implementing a new fraud prevention system. And in the first three years of CMS's fraud prevention system being in place, uh, we prevented $820 million in improper <laughs> Medicare payments going out the door. That sounds like a, a big number, and it really is. <laughs> it prior, is. prior to implementing this system, um, we basically paid all the claims that came in and then went through them to find the ones that could be fraudulent and tried to go back out and get the money. So this fraud prevention system is preventing us from doing that, and it's really saving us a lot in the long run. Um, basically, it's a, it's a predictive analytic modeling system, similar to what a credit card company uses. So the system will see the, the claims coming through, and it will flag those claims that are odd or perhaps don't make sense because you know maybe a provider submitted a claim for you know 50 hours of of services in a in an 8 hour period and so the system will say that's impossible mm -hmm. there's something wrong with this it needs to be looked at and so that's one part of our fraud prevention piece that's been implemented the other thing is we've strengthened our ties to law enforcement agencies across the country with local law enforcement, state law enforcement, um, Department of Justice, and federal law enforcement agencies so that we can crack down on people that we know are committing fraud. And we can go out there, and, and now you'll see people that get put in jail and have to pay back large sums of money when we capture them. 
And so we've really increased what we're doing to, to prevent fraud. Now, during the open enrollment season, seniors are very vulnerable because um, people use that time to try and scam them into providing their Medicare number. So the first thing I always try and educate seniors about is that you don't share that Medicare number with anybody except for the doctor when you go to visit them in their office because they need it to file the insurance claims. If someone knocks on your door and says, hey, I can give you a free knee brace and charge Medicare, and all you need to do is give me your Medicare number, that's more than likely a scam because Medicare looks for medical necessity to pay claims. And so this time of year, seniors are very vulnerable because of the open enrollment and all the activity around Medicare. And so they just need to be very careful. If somebody asks for their Medicare number, they should verify that. And they should not just provide that number because they could be setting somebody up for fraud. The help for seniors around fraud comes from a program called the Senior Medicare Patrol, and every state has a Senior Medicare Patrol agency that, that helps them to protect against fraud. So if they have questions, they can go and talk to them. And I always ask seniors, um, you know, we get uh, an explanation of benefits when we use our insurance. And same thing with Medicare. So I tell seniors that you need to review those explanations of benefits to make sure that the services you are being charged for are services that were actually provided by your physician. Now, sometimes it's a coding error, and you can call the physician's office and they can correct it, but sometimes it's an indicator of fraud. Uh, on the last question, we talked about the compare sites. Um, there's also uh, what we call an open payment site where we show um, what doctors have received payments from medical device or pharmaceutical companies. And so, you know, by being transparent with data, that also helps people to perhaps identify fraud and to let us know uh, if they see something that's, that's uh, not necessarily uh, on the up and up, and we can investigate those kinds of things. Ray, this has been an exciting year for uh, CMS as Medicare and Medicaid celebrate their 50th uh, anniversary and uh, lots have changed. But one of the things that I think is quite remarkable that CMS is continuing to lead in the area of innovation. Uh, the Blue Button Initiative is making it possible for patients to access their health data. CMS just launched the Million Hearts program seeking to uh, incentivize practices to proactively prevent a million heart attacks and strokes in their Medicare patient population. Could you talk about this new culture of innovation at CMS and what kind of promise it holds to improve uh, health outcomes as well as contain cost? Well, as I've said, we currently have 55 million seniors in the program, in the Medicare program. Um, we expect that to be 80 million in the next 15 years. Uh, there are 70 million people across the country that um, have access to health care through either Medicaid or the Children's Health Insurance Program or CHIP program. Um, so in order to make sure that these programs are sustainable, uh, we are implementing innovations to change the way the healthcare delivery system delivers care and pays for care. So the, the big goal for us, of course, is a longer life for the Medicare Trust Fund. But when we look at um, what's happened in the first 50 years of the Medicare program, um, you know, we're starting to see seniors get a lot of different preventive services. Right now we have 23 preventive services that are available to seniors at little or no cost. 
that they didn't have before. So, you know, they can go in and, and get colonoscopies or mammograms or other cancer screenings um, as part of a preventive service as opposed to uh, finding out that there's something wrong after the fact. When we talk innovation, part of the Affordable Care Act was the implementation of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. And um, it's typically referred to as just the Innovation Center. But the Innovation Center is overseeing uh, various models and demonstrations mm -hmm. across the country for different provider groups or payers or even states to try and change the way they deliver and pay for health care. And if, if you're really interested in seeing some of the innovations that are going on in your own state, you can go to cms.gov and, and click on the Innovation Center tab. And you can click on each state, and it will show you what innovative programs are happening within those states. We've been speaking today with Raymond Hurd, Regional Administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You can learn more about their work by going to cms.gov or follow them on Twitter by going to at cms.gov. And if you have any questions about your Medicare plan, you can call 1-800-MEDICARE. Ray, thank you for your service, and thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. It's my pleasure. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, we recently looked at the change in the number of the uninsured under President Obama. The census reported that the number of the uninsured dropped sharply last year, which was the first year in which the main provisions of the Affordable Care Act took effect. The number of uninsured dropped by 8.8 million to 33 million in 2014. What about Obama's entire time in office? Census changed the way it gathers this data in 2013, so we can't compare earlier census numbers with the recent ones. Instead, we use the National Health Interview Survey conducted by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Those numbers are also compiled quarterly and are more up-to-date. During the first three months of this year, 29 million people were uninsured at the time they were interviewed. That's down from 43.8 million during all of 2008, a drop of 14.8 million since Obama was first sworn in. The drop is even more dramatic when measured from the peak of the uninsured, which hit 48.6 million in 2010 as the recession led to a loss of not only jobs, but employer-sponsored health insurance. 16% of Americans lacked health insurance at the time they were interviewed in 2010. That's now down to 9.2% for the first quarter of 2015. There are a lot more statistics on other measures of Obama's time in office in our latest Obama's Numbers article. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, 
Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Falling is a common experience among the elderly, and that is not good news. Hip fractures in the elderly are an enormous, devastating, expensive death sentence of an injury. If you're over 65 and you've fallen and broken your hip, 25% of them will die within 12 months. Another 25% will never be able to live independently, and a full 75% will never regain full mobility. That statistic got former airbag executive Drew Lucatos thinking, what if you could apply the technology used in airbags to create wearable devices that protect a person from the impact of falling? So similar to the auto industry, our government has spent billions in about two decades on fall prevention programs for the elderly. What I'm suggesting is we make that same strategic shift that the auto industry did, and we begin focusing on intelligent protection of our elderly. So they did their research and found a combination of accelerometers and other sensors on the band worn around the waist could deploy within six milliseconds of sensing an imminent fall, and protective bags unfurl around the hip joints before impact with the floor, significantly reducing the blow to the joint. Physics has taught us that Bodies in motion stay in motion until they meet an immovable object, right? In this case, the immovable object is the living room floor. With the right technology, we can ensure that these people that meet that inevitable immovable object, which is the floor, can not only survive that accident, they can walk away. He founded Active Protect Technologies, and while his initial focus was providing a significant barrier to devastating injury in adults, he has additional potential markets as well. With this type of technology, we can protect against concussions. We can now protect Coumadin patients. We can protect postal workers when it's icy out. We can protect our military soldiers from IEDs. A simple retooling of airbag technology in a wearable device that could greatly reduce the devastation of hip fractures, leading to better health outcomes, lower health costs, and better quality of life. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare, broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.